Section 7 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Cairns, Naperville, Illinois. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 7. A single cover having been laid at the end of a long table in the cell for the lieutenant, he had his meal there while the others sat down to theirs in the kitchen. The usual strangely assorted company served by the anxious and silent Catherine. Peril, thoughtful and hungry, faced Citizen Sivola in his working clothes and very much withdrawn within himself. Sivola's aspect was more feverish than usual with the red patches on his cheekbones very marked above the thick beard. From time to time the mistress of the farm would get up from her place by the side of old Peril and go out into the sow to attend to the lieutenant. The other three people seemed unconscious of her absences. Toward the end of the meal, Peril leaned back in his wooden chair and let his gaze rest on the ex-terrorist, who had not finished yet and was still busy over his plate with the air of a man who had done a long morning's work. The door leading from the kitchen to the sow stood wide open, but no sound of voices ever came from there. Till lately, Peril had not concerned himself very much with the mental states of the people with whom he lived. Now, however, he wondered to himself what could be the thoughts of the ex-terrorist patriot. That sanguinary and extremely poor creature occupying the position of master of the escampobar farm but when citizen sivola raised his head at last to take a long drink of wine there was nothing new on that face which in its high colour resembled so much a painted mask their eyes met sacre bleu exclaimed peril at last if you never say anything to anybody like this you will forget how to speak at last the patriot smiled from the depths of his beard, a smile which peril for some reason, mere prejudice perhaps, always thought resembled the defensive grin of some small wild animal afraid of being cornered. What is there to talk about? he retorted. You live with us, you haven't budged from here. I suppose you have counted the bunches of grapes in the enclosure and the figs on the fig tree on the west wall many times over. He paused to lend an air to the dead silence in the sow, and then said, with a slight rise of tone, You and I know everything that is going on here. Peril wrinkled the corners of his eyes in a keen, searching glance. Catherine, clearing the table, bore herself as if she had been completely deaf. Her face, of a walnut color, with sunken cheeks and lips, might have been a carving in the marvelous immobility of its fine wrinkles. Her carriage was upright, and her hands swift in their movements. Peril said, We don't want to talk about the farm. Haven't you heard any news lately? The patriot shook his head violently. Of public news he had a horror. Everything was lost. The country was ruled by perjurers and renegades. All the patriotic virtues were dead. He struck the table with his fist and then remained listening, as though the blow could have roused an echo in a silent house. Not the faintest sound came from anywhere. Citizen Sivola sighed. It seemed to him that he was the only patriot left, and even in his retirement his life was not safe. 
I know, said Peril. I saw the whole affair out the window. You can run like a hare, citizen. Was I to allow myself to be sacrificed by those superstitious brutes, argued citizen Savola, in a high-pitched voice and with genuine indignation, which Peril watched coldly. He could hardly catch the mutter of, Perhaps it would have been just as well if I had let those reactionary dogs kill me that time. The old woman washing up at the sink glanced uneasily towards the door of the salle. No, shouted the lonely sans culette. It isn't possible. There must be plenty of patriots left in France. The sacred fire is not burnt out yet. For a short time he presented the appearance of a man who was sitting with ashes on his head and desolation in his heart. His almond-shaped eyes looked dull, extinguished. But after a moment he gave a sidelong look at peril, as if to watch the effort, and began declaiming in a low voice, and apparently as if rehearsing a speech to himself, No, it isn't possible. Some day tyranny will stumble, and then it will be time to pull it down again. We will come out in our thousands and... Sa'ira. Those words and even the passionate energy of the tone left Peril unmoved. With his head sustained by his thick brown hand, he was thinking of something else, so obviously as to depress again the feebly struggling spirit of terrorism in the lonely breast of Citizen Civola. The glow of reflected sunlight in the kitchen became darkened by the body of the fisherman of the lagoon, mumbling a shy greeting to the company from the frame of the doorway without alerting his position peril turned his eyes on him curiously catherine wiping her hands on her apron remarked you come late for your dinner michelle he stepped in then took the old woman's hand an earthenware pot and a large hunk of bread and carried it out at once into the yard peril and the sans culotte got up from the table the latter after hesitating like somebody who has lost his way, went brusquely into the passage, while Peril, avoiding Catherine's anxious stare, made for the backyard. Through the open door of the salle, he obtained a glimpse of Arlette, sitting upright with her hands in her lap, gazing at somebody he could not see, but who could be no other than Lieutenant Rael. In the blaze and heat of the yard, the chickens, broken up into small groups, were having their siesta in patches of shade. But Peril cared nothing for the sun. Michel, who was eating his dinner under the pent roof of the cart shed, put the earthenware pot down on the ground and joined his master at the well, encircled by a low wall of stones and topped by an arch of wrought iron, of which a wild fig tree had twined a slender offshoot. After his dog's death, the fisherman had abandoned the salt lagoon, leaving his rotting punt exposed on the dismal shore and his miserable nets shut up in the dark hut. He did not care for another dog, and besides, who was there to give him a dog? He was the last of men. Somebody must be last. There was no place for him in the life of the village. So one fine morning he had walked up to the farm in order to see peril more correctly, perhaps, to let himself be seen by peril. That was exactly Michel's only hope. He sat down on the stone outside the gate with a small bundle, consisting mainly of an old blanket and a crooked stick, lying on the ground near him, and looking the most lonely, mild, and harmless creature 
on this earth. Peril had listened gravely to his confused tale of the dog's death. He, personally, would not have made a friend of a dog, like Michelle's dog. But he understood perfectly the sudden breaking up of the establishment on the shore of the lagoon. So when Michelle had concluded with the words, I thought I would come up here, Peril, without waiting for a plain request, had said, Très bien, you will be my crew, and had pointed down the path leading to the seashore. And as Michelle, picking up the bundle and stick, started off, waiting for no further directions, he had shouted after him, You will find a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine and a locker aft to break your fast on. These had been the only formalities of Michelle's engagement to serve as crew on board Peril's boat. The rover, indeed, had tried without loss of time to carry out his purpose of getting something of his own that would float. It was not so easy to find anything worthy. The miserable population of Madraga, a tiny fishing hamlet facing towards Toulon, had nothing to sell. Moreover, Perrault looked with contempt on all of their possessions. He would have as soon bought a catamaran of three logs of wood tied together with rattans as one of their boats. But lonely and prominent on the beach, lying on her side in weather-beaten melancholy, there was a two-masted tartan, with her sun-whitened cordage hanging in festoons, and her dry mass showing long cracks. No man was ever seen dozing under the shade of her hull, on which the Mediterranean gulls made themselves very much at home. She looked a wreck, thrown high up on the land by a disdainful sea. Perrault, having surveyed her from a distance, saw that the rudder still hung in its place. He ran his eye along her body, and said to himself that a craft with such lines would sail well. She was much bigger than anything he had thought of, but in her size, too, there was a fascination. It seemed to bring all the shores of the Mediterranean within his reach, Belairs and Corsica, Barbary and Spain. Peril had sailed over hundreds of leagues of ocean in a craft that were no bigger. At his back, in silent wonder, a knot of fishermen's wives, bareheaded and lean, with a swarm of ragged children clinging to their skirts, watched the first stranger they had seen for years. Perrault borrowed a short ladder in the hamlet. He knew better than to trust his weight to any of the ropes hanging over the side, and carried it down to the beach, followed at a respectful distance by the staring women and children, a phenomenon and a wonder to the natives, as it had happened to him before on more than one island in distant seas. He clambered on board the neglected tartan, and stood on the decked forepart, the center of all eyes. A gull flew away with an angry scream. The bottom of the open hold contained nothing but a little sand. A few broken pieces of wood, a rusty hook, and some few stalks of straw which the wind must have carried for miles before they found their rest in there. The decked after part had a small skylight and a companion, and Peril's eyes rested fascinated on an enormous padlock which secured its sliding door. It was as if there had been secrets or treasures inside, and yet, most probably, it was empty. Peril turned his head away, and with the whole strength of his lungs shouted in the direction of the fishermen's wives, who had been joined by two very old men and a hunchbacked cripple swinging between two crutches. "'Is there anybody looking after this tartan, a caretaker?' 
At first, the only answer was a movement of recoil. Only the hunchback held his ground and shouted back in an unexpectedly strong voice, "'You are the first man that has been on board her for years.' The wives of the fishermen admired his boldness, for peril indeed appeared to them a very formidable being. "'I might have guessed that,' thought peril. "'She is in a dreadful mess. The disturbed gull had brought some friends as indignant as itself, and they circled at different levels, uttering wild cries.' over peril's head he shouted again who does she belong to the being on crutches lifted a finger towards the circling birds and answered in a deep tone they are the only ones i know then as peril gazed down at him over the side he went on this craft used to belong to escampabar you know escampabar it's a house in the hollow between the hills there yes i know escampabar yelled peril turning away and leaning against the mast, in a pose which he did not change for a long time. His own immobility tired out the crowd. They moved slowly in a body towards their hovels. The hunchback, bringing up the rear with long swings between his crutches, and peril remained alone with the angry gulls. He lingered on board the tragic craft which had taken Arlette's parents to their death in the vengeful massacre of Toulon, and had brought the youthful Arlette and citizen Scivola back to Escampabar, where old Catherine, left alone at that time, had waited for days for somebody's return, days of anguish and prayer, while she listened to the booming of guns about Toulon, and with an almost greater but different terror to the dead silence which ensued. Perrault, enjoying the sensation of some sort of craft under his feet, indulged in no images of horror connected with the desolate tart. It was late in the evening before he returned to the farm, so that he had had his supper alone. The woman had retired only. The sans colette, smoking a short pipe out of doors, had followed him into the kitchen, and asked where he had been and whether he had lost his way. The question gave Perrault an opening. He had been to Madraga and had seen a very fine tartan lying perishing on the beach. They told me down there that she belonged to you, Citoyen. At this the terrorist only blinked. What's the matter? Isn't she the craft you came here in? Won't you sell her to me? Peril waited a little. What objection can you have? It appeared the patriot had no positive objections. He mumbled something about the tartan being very dirty. This caused Peril to... Look at him with an intense astonishment. I am ready to take her off your hands as she stands. I will be frank with you, Sityon. You see, when she lay at the quay in Toulon, a lot of fugitive traders, men and women, and children too, swarmed on board of her, and cut the ropes with a view of escaping. But the avengers were not far behind, and made short work of them. When we discovered her behind the arsenal, I and another man, we had to throw a lot of bodies overboard, out of the hold and the cabin. You will find her very dirty all over. We had no time to clear up. Peril felt inclined to laugh. He had seen decks swimming in blood and had himself helped to throw dead bodies overboard after a fight. But he eyed the citizen with an unfriendly eye. He thought to himself... He had a hand in the massacre, no doubt, but he made no audible remark. He only thought of the enormous padlock securing that emptied charnel house at the stern.
the terrorist insisted. We really had not a moment to clean her up. The circumstances were such that it was necessary for me to get away quickly, lest some false patriots should do me some carmignol or other. There had been bitter quarreling in my section. I was not alone getting away, you know. Peril waved his arm to cut short the explanation, but before he and the terrorist had parted for the night, Peril could regard himself as the owner of the tragic tartan. The next day he returned to the hamlet and took up his quarters there for a time. The awe he had inspired wore off, though no one cared to come very near the tartan. Peril did not want any help. He wrenched off the enormous padlock himself, with a bar of iron, and let the light of day into the little cabin, which did indeed bear the traces of the massacre and the stains of blood on its woodwork, but contained nothing else except a wisp of long hair and a woman's earring, a cheap thing which Peril picked up and looked at for a long time. The associations of such finds were not foreign to his past. He could, without very strong emotion, figure to himself the little lace choked with corpses. He sat down and looked about at the stains and splashes which had been untouched by sunlight for years. The cheap little earring lay before him on a rough-hewn table between the lockers, and he shook his head at it weightily. He, at any rate, had never been a butcher. Peril, unassisted, did all the cleaning. Then he turned con amor to the fitting out of the tartan. The habits of activity still clung to him. He welcomed something to do. This congenial task had all the air of preparation for a voyage, which was a pleasing dream, and it brought every evening the satisfaction of something achieved to that illusory end. He rove new gear, scraped the masks himself, did all the sweeping, scrubbing, and painting single-handed, working steadily and hopefully as though he had been preparing his escape from a desert island. And directly... He had cleaned and renovated the dark little hole of a cabin he took to sleeping on board. Once only he went up on a visit to the farm for a couple days, as if to give himself a holiday. He passed them mostly in observing Arlette. She was perhaps the first problematic human being he had ever been in contact with. Peril had no contempt for women. He had seen them love, suffer, endure, riot, and even fight for their own hand very much like men. Generally, with men and women you had to be on your guard, but in some ways women were more to be trusted. As a matter of fact, his countrywomen were, to him, less known than any other kind. From his experience of many different races, however, he had a vague idea that women were very much alike everywhere. This one was a lovable creature. She produced on him the effect of a child, aroused a kind of intimate emotion, which he had not known before to exist by itself in a man. He was startled by its detached character. "'Is it that I am getting old?' he asked himself suddenly one evening, as he sat on the bench against the wall looking straight before him, after she had crossed his line of sight. He felt himself an object of observation to Catherine, whom he used to detect peeping at him around the corners or through half-open doors." On his part, he would stare at her openly, aware of the impression he produced on her, mingled curiosity and awe. He had the idea she did not disapprove of his presence at the farm, where, it was plain to him, she had a far from easy life. This had no relation to the fact that she did all the household work. She was a woman of 
about his own age, straight as a dart, but with a wrinkled face. One evening, as they were sitting alone in the kitchen, Peril said to her, You must have been a handsome girl in your day, Catherine. It's strange you never got married. She turned to him under the high mantle of the fireplace and seemed struck all of a heap, unbelieving, amazed, so that Peril was quite provoked. What's the matter? If the old moke in the yard had spoken, you could not look more surprised. You can't deny that you were a handsome girl. She recovered from her, scarce to say, I was born here, grew up here, and early in my life I made up my mind to die here. A strange notion, said Peril, for a young girl to take into her head. It's not a thing to talk about, said the old woman, stooping to get a pot out of the warm ashes. I did not think then, she went on, with her back to Peril, that I would live long. When I was eighteen I fell in love with a priest. Ah, bah! exclaimed Peril under his breath. That was the time when I prayed for death, she pursued, in a quiet voice. I spent nights on my knees upstairs in that room where you sleep now. I shunned everybody. People began to say I was crazy. We have always been hated by the rabble about here. They have poisonous tongues. I got the nickname of Le Fiancé du Pret. Yes, I was handsome. But who would have looked at me? if I had wanted to be looked at. My only luck was to have a fine man for a brother. He understood. No word passed his lips, but sometimes when we were alone, and not even his wife was by, he would lay his hand on my shoulder gently. From that time to this I have not been to church, and I never will go. But I have no quarrel with God now. There were no signs of watchfulness and care in her bearing now. She stood straight as an arrow before Peril, and looked at him with a confident air. The rover was not yet ready to speak. He only nodded twice. And Catherine turned away to put the pot to cool in the sink. Yes, I wished to die, but I did not, and now I have got something to do, she said, sitting down near the fireplace and taking her chin in her hand. And I dare say you know what that is, she added. Peril got up deliberately. Well, Bonsoir, he said, I am off to Madraga. I want to begin work again on the tartan at daylight. Don't talk to me about the tartan. She took my brother away forever. I stood on the shore watching her sails growing smaller and smaller. Then I came up alone to this farmhouse. Moving calmly her faded lips, which no lover or child had ever kissed, old Catherine told Peril of the days and nights of waiting. With the distant growl of the big guns in her ears, she used to sit outside on the bench longing for news, watching the flickers in the sky and listening to heavy bursts of gunfire coming over the water. Then came a night, as if the world were coming to an end. All the sky was lighted up, the earth shook to its foundations, and she felt the house rock, so that jumping up from the bench she screamed with fear. That night she never went to bed. Next morning she saw the sea covered with sails, while a black and yellow cloud of smoke hung over Toulon. A man coming up from Madriga told her that he believed that the whole town had been blown up. She gave him a bottle of wine, and he helped her to feed the stock that evening. Before going home he expressed the opinion that there could not be a soul left alive in Toulon. 
because the few that survived would have gone away in the English ships. Nearly a week later, she was dozing by the fire when voices outside woke her up, and she beheld, standing in the middle of the cell, pale, like a corpse out of a grave, with a blood-soaked blanket over her shoulders and a red cap on her head, a ghastly-looking young girl, in whom she suddenly recognized her niece. She screamed in her terror, Francois, Francois, and she thought he was outside. Her scream scared the girl, who ran out of the door. All was still outside. Once more she screamed, Francois, and tottering as far as the door, she saw her niece cling to the strange man in a red cap and with a saber by his side, who yelled excitedly, You won't see Francois again. Vive la République. I recognized the son Braun, went on Catherine. I knew his parents. When the troubles began, he left his home to follow the revolution. I walked straight up to him and took the girl away from his side. She didn't want much coaxing. The child always loved me, she continued, getting up from the stool and moving a little closer to peril. She remembered her Aunt Catherine. I tore the horrid blanket off of her shoulders. Her hair was clotted with blood and her clothes all stained with it. I took her upstairs. She was as helpless as a little child. I undressed her and examined her all over. She had no hurt anywhere. I was sure of that. But of what more could I be sure? I couldn't make sense of the things she babbled at me. Her very voice distracted me. She fell asleep directly. I had put her into my bed, and I stood there looking down at her, nearly going out of my mind with the thought of what that child may have been dragged through. When I went downstairs, I found that good-for-nothing inside the house. He was ranting up and down the cell, vaporing and boasting till I thought all this must be an awful dream. My head was a whirl. He laid claim to her, and God knows what. I seemed to understand things that made my hair stare on my head. I stood there clasping my hands with all the strength I had for fear I should go out of my senses. He frightened you? said Peril, looking at her steadily. Catherine moved a step nearer to him. What? The son of Braun frightened me? He was the butt of all the girls, mooning about amongst the people outside the church on feast days in the time of the king. All the countryside knew about him. No, what I said to myself was that I mustn't let him kill me. There, upstairs, was the child I had just got away from him. And there was I, all alone with that man, with the saber, and unable to get hold of a kitchen knife even. And so he remained, said Peril. What would you have had me to do, asked Catherine steadily. He had brought the child back out of those shambles. It was a long time before I got an idea of what had happened. I don't know everything even yet, and I suppose I will never know. In a very few days my mind was more at ease about Arlette. But it was a long time before she would speak, and then it was never anything to the purpose. And what could I have done single-handed? There was nobody I would condescend to call to my help. We of the Escampabar have never been in favor with the peasants here, she said proudly, and that is all I can tell you. Her voice faltered. She sat down on the stool again and took her chin in the palm of her hand. As Peril left the house, to go to the hamlet, he saw Arlette, 
and the patron come around the corner of the yard, walking side by side, but as if unconscious of each other. That night he slept on board the renovated tartan, and the rising sun found him at work about the hull. By that time he had ceased to be the object of odd contemplation to the inhabitants of the hamlet, who still, however, kept up a mistrustful attitude. His only intermediary for communicating with them was the miserable cripple. He was Peril's only company. In fact, during his period of work on the tartan, he had more activity, audacity, and intelligence, it seemed to Peril, than all the rest of the inhabitants put together. Early in the morning, he could be seen making his way on his crutches, with a pendulum motion towards the hull on which Peril would have been already an hour or so at work. Peril then would throw him over a sound rope's end, and the cripple, leaning his crutches against the side of the tartan, would pull his wretched little carcass, all withered below the waist, up the rope, hand over hand, with extreme ease. There, sitting on the small foredeck with his back against the mass and his thin, twisted legs folded in front of him, he would keep Peril company talking to him along the whole length of the tart in a strained voice, and sharing his midday meal, as of right, since it was he generally who brought the provision slung round his neck in a quaint flat basket. Thus were the hours of labor shortened for parole by shrewd remarks and bits of local gossip. How the cripple got hold of it was difficult to imagine, and the rover had not enough knowledge of European superstitions to suspect him of flying through the night on a broomstick like a sort of male witch. For there was a manliness in that twisted scrap of humanity which struck Perrault from the first. His very voice was manly, and the character of his gossip was not feminine. He did indeed mention to Peril that people used to take him about the neighborhood in carts for the purpose of playing a fiddle at weddings and other festive occasions, but this seemed hardly adequate, and even he himself confessed that there was not much of that sort of thing going on during the Revolution, when people didn't like to attract attention and everything was done in a hole-and-corner manner. There were no priests to officiate at weddings, and if there were no ceremonies, how could there be rejoicings? Of course children were born as before, but there were no christenings, and people got to look funny somehow or other. Their countenances got changed somehow. The very boys and girls seemed to have something on their minds. Peril, busy about one thing and another, listened without appearing to pay much attention to the story of the revolution. As if to the tale of an intelligent islander on the other side of the world, talking of bloody rites and amazing hopes of some religion, unknown to the rest of mankind. But there was something biting in the speech of that cripple, which confused his thoughts a little. Sarcasm was a mystery, which he could not understand. On one occasion, he remarked to his friend, the cripple, as they sat together on the foredeck munching the bread and figs of their midday meal, there must be something in it, but it doesn't seem to have done much for people here. To be sure, retorted the scrap of man vivaciously, it hasn't straightened my back or given me a pair of legs like yours. Peril, whose trousers were rolled up above the knees because he had been washing the hold, looked at his calves complacently. You could hardly have expected that, he remarked with simplicity. 
Ah, but you don't know what people with properly made bodies expected or pretended to, said the cripple. Everything was going to be changed. Everybody was going to tie up his dog with a string of sausages for the sake of principles. His long face, which, in repose, had an expression of suffering peculiar to cripples, was lighted up by an enormous grin. They must feel jolly well sold by this time, he added, and of course that vexes them, but I am not vexed. I was never vexed with my father and mother. While the poor things were alive, I never went hungry. Not very hungry. They couldn't have been very proud of me. He paused and seemed to contemplate himself mentally. I don't know what I would have done in their place. Something very different, but then, don't you see, I know what it means to be like I am. Of course they couldn't know, and I don't suppose the poor people had very much sense. A priest from Almanar. Almanar is a sort of village up there where there is a church. Parole interrupted him by remarking that he knew all about Almanar. This, on his part, was a simple delusion, because, in reality, he knew much less of Almanar than of Zanzibar, or any pirate village from there up to Cape Gardafui. And the cripple contemplated him with his brown eyes, which had an upward cast naturally. You know, for me, he went on, in a tone of quiet decision, you are a man fallen from the sky. Well, a priest from Almanar came to bury them, a fine man with a stern face, the finest man I have seen from that time till you dropped on us here. There was a story of a girl having fallen in love with him some years before. I was old enough then to have heard something of it, but that's neither here nor there. Moreover, many people wouldn't believe the tale. Peril, without looking at the cripple, tried to imagine what sort of child he might have been. What sort of youth? The rover had seen staggering deformities, dreadful mutilations, which were the cruel work of man, but it was amongst people with dusky skins, and that made a great difference. But what he had heard and seen, since he had come back to his native land, the tales, the facts, and also the faces, reached his sensibility with a peculiar force. Because of that feeling that came to him, so suddenly, after a whole lifetime spent amongst Indians, Malagashes, Arabs, Blackamoors, of all sorts, that he belonged there, to this land, and had escaped all those things by a mere hair's breadth. His companion completed his significant silence, which seemed to have been occupied with thoughts very much like his own, by saying, All this was in the king's time. They didn't cut off his head till several years afterwards. It didn't make my life any easier for me. But since those Republicans had deposed God and flung him out of all the churches, I have forgiven him all my troubles. Spoken like a man, said Peril, only the misshapen character of the cripple's back prevented Peril from giving him a hearty slap. He got up to begin his afternoon's work. It was a bit of inside painting, and from the foredeck the cripple watched him at it with dreamy eyes and something ironic on his lips. It was not till the sun had traveled over Cape Sisi, which could be seen across the water like dark mist in the glare, that he opened his lips to ask, And what do you propose to do with this tartan, Sitien? Peril answered simply that the tartan was fit to go anywhere now, the very moment she took the water. You could go as far as Genoa or Naples, 
And even further, suggested the cripple. Much further, said Peril. And you have been fitting her out like this for a voyage? Certainly, said Peril, using his brush steadily. Somehow I fancy it will not be a long one. Peril never checked to the to and fro a movement of his brush, but it was with an effort. The fact was that he had discovered in himself a distinct reluctance to go away from the Escampabar farm. His desire to have something of his own that could float was no longer associated with any desire to wander. The cripple was right. The voyage of the renovated tartan would not take her very far. What was surprising was the fellow being so very positive about it. He seemed to be able to read people's thoughts. The dragging of the renovated tartan into the water was a great affair. Everybody in the hamlet, including the women, did a full day's work, and there was never so much coin passed from hand to hand in the hamlet in all the days of its obscure history. Swinging between his crutches on a low sand ridge, the cripple surveyed the whole of the beach. It was he that had persuaded the villagers to lend a hand, and had arranged the terms for their assistance. It was he also who, through a very miserable-looking peddler, the only one who frequented the peninsula, had got in touch with some rich persons in Friju who had changed for peril a few of his gold pieces for current money. He had expedited the course of the most exciting and interesting experience of his life, and now, planted on the sand, on his two sticks in the manner of a beacon, he watched the last operation. The rover, as if about to launch himself upon a track of a thousand miles, walked up to shake hands with him, and looked once more at the soft eyes and the ironic smile. There is no denying it. You are a man. Don't talk like this to me, Sityuan, said the cripple, in a trembling voice. Till then, suspended between his two sticks and with his shoulders as high as his ears, he had not looked towards the approaching peril. This is too much of a compliment. I tell you, insisted the rover roughly, and as if the insignificance of the mortal envelopes had presented itself to him for the first time at the end of his roving life, I tell you that there is that in you which would make a chum one would like to have alongside one in a tight place. As he went away from the cripple towards the tartan, while the whole population of the hamlet disposed around her waited for his word, some on land and some waist-deep in the water holding ropes in their hands, Peril had a slight shudder at the thought, Suppose I had been born like that. Ever since he had put his foot on his native land, such thoughts had haunted him. They would have been impossible anywhere else. He could not have been like any blackamoor, good, bad, or indifferent, hale or crippled, king or slave. But here, on this southern shore, that had called to him irresistibly as he had approached the Straits of Gibraltar on what he had felt to be his last voyage, any woman, lean and old enough, might have been his mother. He might have been any Frenchman of them all even one of those he pitied, even one of those he despised. He felt the grip of his origins from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet while he clambered on board the tartan as if for a long and distant voyage. As a matter of fact, he knew very well that with a bit of luck it would be over in about an hour. When the tartan took the water, the feeling of being afloat plucked at his very heart. 
Some, Madraga, fishermen, had been persuaded by the cripple to help old Peril to sail the tartan round to the cove below the Escampabar farm. A glorious sun shone upon that short passage, and the cove itself was full of sparkling light when they arrived. The few Escampabar goats wandering on the hillside pretended to feed where no grass was visible to the naked eye, never even raised their heads. A gentle breeze drove the tartan as fresh as paint could make her, opposite a narrow crack in the cliff, which gave admittance to a tiny basin, no bigger than a village pond, concealed at the foot of the southern hill. It was there that old Peril, aided by the Madraga men, who had their boat with them, towed his ship, the first, really, that he had ever owned. Once in, the tartan nearly filled the little basin, and the fishermen, getting into their boat, rowed away for home. Peril, by spending the afternoon in dragging ropes ashore and fastening them to various boulders and dwarf trees, moored her to his complete satisfaction. She was as safe from the tempest there as of house ashore. After he had made everything fast on board, and had furled the sails neatly, a matter of some time for one man, Peril contemplated his arrangements, which savored of rest much more than of wandering, and found them good. Though he never meant to abandon his room at the farmhouse, he felt that his true home was in the tartan, and he rejoiced at the idea that it was concealed from all eyes except perhaps the eyes of the goats, when their arduous feeding took them on the southern slope. He lingered on board. He even threw open the sliding door of the little cabin, which now smelt of fresh paint, not stale blood. Before he started for the farm, the sun had traveled far beyond Spain, and all the sky to the west was yellow, while on the side of Italy it presented a somber canopy, pierced here and there with the light of stars. Catherine put a plate on the table, but nobody asked him any questions. He spent a lot of his time on board, going down early, coming up at midday, pour mange de la soupe, and sleeping on board almost every night. He did not like to leave the tartan alone for so many hours. Often, having climbed a little way up to the house, he would turn round for the last look at her in the gathering dusk, and actually would go back again. After Michel had been enlisted for a crew, and had taken his abode on board for good, Peril found it much easier matter to spend his nights in the lantern-like room at the top of the farmhouse. Often, waking up at night, he would get up to look at the starry sky out of all his three windows in succession and think, Now there is nothing in the world to prevent me getting out to sea in less than an hour. As a matter of fact, it was possible for two men to manage the tartan. Thus Peril's thought was comfortingly true in every way, for he loved to feel himself free, and Michel of the lagoon, after the death of the depressed dog, had no tie on earth. It was a fine thought which somehow made it quite easy for Peril to go back to his four-poster and resume his slumbers. End of section 7 Recording by John Cairns Naperville, Illinois